You're listening to Megiddo Radio. Megiddo Radio is a radio ministry of Megiddo Media. For more, visit our website at megiddoradio.com. That's megiddoradio.com. Welcome. This is Paul Flynn with Megiddo Radio for Tuesday, the 14th of January, 2020. Thank you all for tuning in. On tonight's program, we're going to be looking at the recent controversy over Francis Chan, although I would say I'm not really surprised, and, and I don't take any great joy in saying that. He's been going this direction for a long time. Um, if anybody's not aware and is not aware of what controversy I'm speaking of, Francis Chan, this wasn't recent. This was, well, I think it was sometime in January. He put, or no, sorry, December. He put up something on the Crazy Love YouTube channel. Then Sermon Index took that sermon, put it on their channel. Then they took a clip. And the clip... Two seconds there, I can see two copies of myself, and it's detracting me. <laughs> um, then Sermon Index took a clip um, entitled, uh, I'll just give you the title of it, um, Holy Communion, The Reason for the Gathering of the Church by Francis Chan. They put that up three minutes and 30 seconds, and uh, yeah, and he said some stuff, and um, yeah, he's kind of... This has been kind of his drift for a while. It's not in a vacuum. Um, I've had one or two conversations with brother and brothers in the Lord about this. <clears throat> it, it seems to surprise certain people that Chan is here. Um, where do you start? Okay, there's been his embracing of various false teachers, but apart, apart from that, Look, we can, you could all say, you know, we've all got blind spots. Um, he met with the Pope of Rome and was very favorable towards that. We talked about that in the program about seven months ago. You can look at an old program. Um, there's no clip. It's interesting. No one see. I haven't seen anybody else talk about his meeting with the, the Pope of Rome and being very, very positive towards it. Also, um, the him being very ecumenical towards Roman Catholicism and all, and look, very obviously treating Roman Catholicism as just another Christian denomination. And we got to get, we got to reunify with Rome and all the other bodies as well. Greek Orthodox, all the other stuff as well. So that's been his direction for years now. Um, I don't know. Like Mike Bickle, who's big fans of Mike Bickle, and there's a number of different people in that in the charismatic wing who are very ecumenical as well. And he's in that, and he's been in that movement for years. So I know because Chan might speak with people like Ravi Zacharias or whoever else it is, might think, ah, is Chan pretty sound? Not so much. I'm not going to go back over it again, but I I critiqued his book about seven months ago as well. Um, the last one he did, which I think it's the last one he did, Letters to the Church, Francis Chan, 
and I dealt with the major, major problem with him, and and also the ma- the major reason he's so popular. Francis Chan will complain about genuine, or at least what sound like genuine problems in the church. The ver- and he'll complain in a very vague way. There's not enough love in the church. There's not enough interest in the church. There's not enough. Pick, take your, take your pick. Um, always kept very general. Always kept in such a way that I'm not saying that he's intentionally doing this. I have no idea. But it, it's a the way he describes it. You can take what you believe and insert it. So, who doesn't believe that there's not a need for more love, more compassion, more fellowship? That we we shouldn't be. You know, in a very vague sense, yes, um, but he never provides any positive solutions. It's easy to complain about things, and he gathers in a disgruntled generation who are kind of going, well, how? where is it going? Um, I suppose there's a lot of people in their 20s and their 30s who, for whatever reason, disconnection, whatever with previous generation of church, Whatever church they were raised in, maybe not taught very much, maybe not taught much of anything at all. They might think they know something, but they don't. Some of them go through a lot of theological education and seem to know next to nothing about fundamental, basic, creedal doctrines that anybody should know if they're going to go into ministry or anything else, or even be a ruling elder or whatever else that you might be talking about. So you get a whole generation growing up like that and feeling dissatisfied and frustrated and all this kind of stuff. And this kind of stuff appeals to that. But you also, I got to say, what's he, how is he exactly helping in any of the things that is complaining about. We got to be careful we don't do this ourselves. Okay, so let's go. We're going to go into and look at this um, greetings to everybody who's joining in the chat. If you've got any questions, you can put it in the chat. Um, the This is a live program, usually on every Tuesday. The time fluctuates. <laughs> um, and it's not always every Tuesday. It kind of just depends if I can fit it in or not. And. Uh, I've got exams are in April, so there's a good chance there won't be many programs beyond the start of March or something like that. There'll probably be a handful over the next few weeks, um, but we'll, it's going to be played by your, in the summer, I think there'll be far more of a schedule, but I always say just, we'll cross that bridge when you get to it. If you have any if you have any shows you'd like me to do, uh, any topics you'd like me to cover, Films at gmail.com, Films at gmail.com. And just, if you can, try to keep it to something that I have done before. I'm not going to be doing any research outside of college-related materials. Um, I, yeah, I won't go into it much more than that. Okay, so... Let's get into it. Let's look at the the clip, first of all, that's causing the controversy in case anybody doesn't know what I'm talking about. Um, let's play it, and then we'll give some context and respond to it. 
body and blood of Christ somehow in some real way. Again, taking of the body and blood of Christ somehow in some real way. Again, I'm not making any like grand statements. I'm just saying I, some of this stuff I didn't know. I didn't know that for the first 1,500 years of church history, everyone saw it as the literal body and blood of Christ. And it wasn't until 500 years ago that someone popularized a thought that it's just a symbol and nothing more. I didn't know that. I thought, wow, well, that's something to consider. Um, and and I, while I won't make a strong statement, I will make a statement about this. It was at that same time that for the first time, someone put a pulpit in the front of the gathering. Because before that, it was always the body and blood of Christ that was central to their gatherings. For 1,500 years, it was never one guy and his pulpit being the center of the church. It was the body and blood of Christ. And even the leaders just saw themselves as partakers. And oh man, we're not worthy, we're not worthy, we're not worthy. I say that because the church is more divided than any time in history. What does this book tell us clearly? That he does not want any divisions in his church. And for a thousand years, there was just one church. Did you know that? We're so used to growing up in a time when literally there are over 30,000 Christian denominations right now. But for the first thousand years, there was just one. What was interesting is communion was at the center of the room every time they gathered. And it wasn't a pulpit where a guy preached. After studying in his office by himself for 20 hours. See, right now we've got guys like me that go in a room, study. You know, that, that's what I was doing for years. Meanwhile, other guys went in their rooms and studied. And then we started all giving different messages so many contradicting each other. And pretty soon it's like, well, I follow Piper, I follow Chan, I follow, you know, it's just like everyone's following different guys. I'm just saying, I, I believe there was something about taking communion out of the center of the church and replace it with a gifted speaker. Not that that gifted speaker is not a part of the body of Christ, and a gift to the body of Christ. But the body itself needs to be back in the center of the church. You guys, I've been dreaming about this. I've been praying about this. Going, man, I would love it if one day in our country, here in the U.S., people understood the body of Christ that they were just a part of it and they got excited to gather and partake of the body and blood of Christ. And they celebrated together and that's why we gathered. Okay, so I said I'd play all that and we're going to go through it all again because I know I have a tendency of something stopping it too much. So don't worry, we will go back over. Oh. 
we will go back over it and respond to it. There's a lot of stuff there. Um, very, very quickly. Uh, he's not, this is not something you just wonder how somebody, the best thing you could possibly hope for is that the guy is ignorant. Um, from what I know, he, he went to, was a master seminary or something. I, I, having been in, in the ministry, how long and how many books that there's written on the, the subject, it's, it, it's pretty astonishing. It, it, it's reckless. It's irresponsible. At best. At best. This is the nicest thing I could say about it. Um, there are, and it's not just older history books like Jay Wiley or, you know, whoever else has written on the blasphemy of the Roman Catholic Mass. But also, like modern books, I'll just recommend um, 2,000 Years of Christ's Power. It's not, I'm not saying it's the greatest book I've ever read on church history, um, but it does go through a lot of the things and shows the various different views that existed um, with regards to uh, the Lord's table and how it changed and so on, especially in the early church and the greater apostasy that came in. And um, I'll also maybe, I'll recommend one or two other ones as well. But in case I forget to mention, I might be quoting this from this quite a bit during my critique of this uh, book by uh, William Webster. I don't see this recommended quite a bit. It was published by Banner of Truth, and it's called The Church of Rome at the Bar of History. And basically what it does is it takes Roman Catholic doctrines and it checks out their own claims of being historic and all oh, the early church believed this and all. And basically in a, in a, in a great way, um, William Webster um I think this was published back in the mid-90s, goes through a lot of different Roman Catholic doctrines, compares them with history, quotes a lot of early church fathers, showing that, no, they're not following the early church either, but I digress. So if you for further study, um, I would read this book. Um, very, very good indeed. So let's play the clip and let's respond to it. Taking of the body and blood of Christ somehow in some real way Again, I'm not making any like grand statements. I'm just saying. <laughs> this is one of the reasons. This is one of the reasons I played it all the way through. Yeah, um, and Shan, you'll notice, has like a habit of doing. I'm not saying anything big here. And then drops a theological bomb right after it. And you never, it's never clear what Chan says a lot of the time. And he'll often say, well, I'm not saying anything big, but this, and uh, just forget that nonsense. I don't know if anybody's actually trying to defend him based on, well, he's not making any big claims. Look, from the context, it looks like he's preaching somewhere, right? Some kind of a gathering, whether it's a, a church service or conference. I'm not exactly sure where it's at. Um, but he makes plenty of grand statements all over the place. He just couch, couches them in. Oh, I'm just I'm just putting stuff out there, and what you do with it is your business. That's by the way, that's not preaching. Preaching is meant to be with authority. But I digress. I mean, no one should ever talk about talk like this from the pulpit. You should. The only things that should come out of your lips when you're preaching are things 
from the Word of God, derived from the Word of God, explanations and exegesis of the Word of God, application of the Word of God. Most of your, your preaching should be imperatives. What facts from the Scriptures, things that you know. Chan is a train wreck at best. He hops around all over the place. There's nothing impressive about what he does at all. And I've, I've listened to a lot of his stuff over the last year or two. Very much the same thing. It doesn't look like there's any major theme or structure. And look, you probably say, well, a lot of people do that. Okay. But the notoriety and the fame that kind of attracts, why? I think just his preaching, his preaching just really doesn't demand anything of anyone. And just, yeah, I'm annoyed at that too. Yeah, yeah, we should be more unified. Yeah. Yeah. I, some of this stuff I didn't know. I didn't know that for the first 1,500 years of church history, everyone saw it as the literal body and blood of Christ. I didn't know this either. It's very interesting. I don't know if any other history book or I don't even know if Augustine knew about this either. Um, okay. Um, I don't care what the view you're talking about is. If you start saying the following, every early church father believed, hmm, no, they didn't. And I don't care. You, yeah, you can find Orthodox theology, of course. You can find the gospel of grace, by grace alone, through faith alone, Christ alone, in the early church. Yes, of course. But you're also going to find some weird things. You're going to find some, you know, like, origin and some of his strange views. Um, it, it wasn't until about the 5th century, the Council of Chalcedon, that they really settled upon a stable and precise definition. A definition, if you go beyond this, you're going to get into theological heresy um, about how Christ is true God and true man. Truly God, truly man. How long did that take the church? Hundreds of years. The Trinity, hundreds of years. It's not that the, the, the doctrine wasn't there, but there were some variations, there were some, and on something as central as the doctrine of the Trinity, you're going to get some people, we're going to say, it's not that they don't believe in the Trinity, but they just say things that are inconsistent with a triune God, um, and weren't really aired out until Arianism came upon the scene, then, you know, the Council I see and all this kind of stuff to respond to that. It often takes theological heresy in order for the church to go, oh, something's not right there. And then in the multitude of counselors, their safety, people meet together. There's a synod of some kind and, and by God's grace, the spirit of God will lead them hopefully to making the right decision. I'm not, that is not to say that synods are infallible or anything like that, but, um, you know, you pray. This is what generally happens over church history. Of course, there can be synods that go in the wrong direction. 
Now, he's saying, well, for 1,500 years, they all believed this. Now, again, this is my what doctrine you're talking about, no matter how orthodox or not unorthodox, whatever. No, you cannot find uniformity of any view. Now, let's deal with um, the one over the Lord's Supper. I suppose a lot of it can depend on what you mean by literal. There are four views, four main views since the Reformation. Roman Catholicism, which believes in transubstantiation, transubstantiation um, originated medieval church, became dogma around the 13th century, maybe even earlier than that. Thomas Aquinas defended it. Um, and what was it, 12, I think it was 1215, it became official Roman church dogma, um, was challenged by the Reformation. And transubstantiation is this, for anybody who's not aware, basically the, the, the bread is no longer bread, it is changed into the body of Christ, and the, the wine is no longer wine. This is some of the things that some of the reformers were killed over, by the way. Uh, no longer physical wine, but now turned into blood. It changes, and Christ there is physically present. You see, he's going to, this is important to understand, because he's going to erect a bit of a straw man in a second, a kind of a, a view that only some, well, some hold to. Anyway, and then there's the Lutheran view, which is consubstantiation, which they would believe that Christ is physically present, but with con the bread, but they don't believe that the bread has been turned. They say the bread is still there. Uh, it is still bread. It is still wine, but it is with the elements. Then there's the Reformed or Calvinistic view of the Lord's table. This might get confusing because we think of Calvinism as the five points of Calvinism. That Christ is spiritually present. Yes, we do feed on Christ, but spiritually by faith. And if you're an unbeliever, you eat and drink damnation unto your soul. That was the, the Reformed view, okay? That See, that's what I mean. What do you mean by literal? Of course, everybody's going to think of physical. Um, it sounds like that's what he's talking about. Um, and certainly all the Roman Catholics online, a lot of different people seem to have taken that and run with it. Um, so, and then there's... Then there's the kind of Zwinglian, I don't know, I've never done the research to know if Zwingli's been wrongly described, that this is the view he held, Luther didn't have a high view of Zwingli because of this. But there are certainly, among certain Baptists, I don't want to say all Baptists hold this view, that Christ is not present at all, spiritually otherwise, in the sacrament. They usually they would just call it an ordinance, um, and it's merely a memorial. That's it. And there might be variations in between the reform view and um, because people are so afraid of transubstantiation, the reform view has always been. It is not an empty sign. Christ is spiritually present. And we, if you want to use this, feed upon Christ, 
spiritually by faith. By faith. The, almost picture like this, and I think Augustine also used, I think this is Augustine quote, as the audible word is preached, the sacraments are the visible word. The gospel in the sacraments is set forward in the senses. The need to be regenerated, washed by the blood of Christ is pointed towards in baptism, and the need to feed upon Christ to be um, that union and communion with Christ as we walk with him, signified and sealed in um, the Lord's Supper. So, the Reform would be, believe he's spiritually present, but it all has to do with, when it comes to Roman Catholicism, is Christ's humanity, you know, does the bread change, and is it another sacrament, sacrifice for sin? Is And this is how it affects the gospel. If you believe in transubstantiation, and upon the altar, Christ is, in an unbloody manner, sacrificed again and again and again. And this is what Francis Chan's words at least lead credence towards. If he didn't mean that, he's unbelievably sloppy and really historically insensitive and should come forward and say, no, no, this is not what I meant by that. And I retract that and, I, and, and state very clearly, if you if you are a minister, you're ministering community, and you have no idea about the sacraments. What are you doing? This is something you should know. It wasn't until five hundred years ago that someone popularized a thought that it's just a symbol and nothing more. Again, um, it's a bit of a straw man. Okay, you might include Zwingli in that, and there are... I was, look, I was in some of the churches I was initially in, some Baptist churches, not all the Baptist church. I, I have Baptist friends who wouldn't believe it's just a bare sign at all. Um, the crisis spiritually present, they'd hold to the Calvinistic uh, view of the Lord's Supper. Be very careful in your theology, not just to go, Rome holds one view, so we're going to go the opposite view. <clears throat> Don't, I was raised Roman Catholic, okay, I understand the tendency. You want to be as, you know, you get saved, you get born again, you, you, you repent of your sins and you trust in Christ, and you don't want to get deceived again, so you want to go to the opposite end. I get it. All I'll just say is be patient, study through the scriptures, read. Men have written for hundreds of years on this, not just Calvin or whoever else. The early church started to say things like around about the 4th century that the body and blood had been kind of quote-unquote changed. But and seem to give some credence towards this. At the same time, um, they held to 
that these were symbols, that it didn't turn into, that the, the, the wine didn't become the, as he says here, literal blood of Christ. They didn't hold that view. If you look, for example, at a quote here from Peter Lombard, who wrote kind of a, it was, it was a medieval systematic theology in his uh, sentences, as it was called, expressing Augustine's view as well. He said this, We may briefly reply that this is offered and consecrated by the priest. It's called a sacrifice and an immolation because it is immemorial and a representation of the true sacrifice and true immolation made upon the altar of the cross. Now, wait a second a bit. That might sound like it. And here's the thing. Certain things did creep in over time that eventually led to transubstantiation. However, at the same time, it says Christ died once upon the cross. This is Peter Lombard. And there was immolate, immolate, and there he was immolated in his own person. Yet every day he is immolated sacramentally because that's, that might sound like it's leaning towards transubstantiation, and it kind of is. However, this is where it stops, because in the sacrament there is a recalling of what was done once. It's not being done again. Um, this is what William Webster just commenting on. This is a, The meaning of the term, as it is expressed here, is strictly that of a sacramental commemoration. It was not literal. However, Trent's use of the term added a new dimension of the meaning of the word, which differs from that of Augustine. So there was a kind of, in one sense, a drifting towards that, but they never went that far at all. Um, I'm after missing, I'm after losing that. Quote, um, go fast forward a couple of hundred years until about, I think it was the 8th century. And... There was a theological debate that took place, just showing how everybody didn't agree on this. There was a theological debate that took place between uh, Radbertus and a man by the name of Ratramnus. They were two Frankish monks. Uh, Radbertus lived from 785 to 860, and Rad Ratramnus, I have difficulty saying it sometimes because you could get the two of them mixed up, he died in 868. They clashed over the doctrine of Holy Communion, one believing in a more kind of transubstantiation, one more believing that Christ is spiritually present. And, um, and Ratramnus was influential later in the Reformation. I think it was Nicholas Ridley's understanding of the sacrament. I'm just going to read here a, a tiny bit how Ratramnus, who would be the more Reformed view, influenced the Reformation. If I can find it here. This is, um, again, I'm just quoting here from Nick Needham, Volume 3, Renaissance and uh, Reformation. Says here, um, then it was Nicholas Ridley, um, talks about it here. Ridley had moved slowly towards Protestantism in Henry VIII's reign. Unusually and, and decisive influence on him was newly discovered treatise on the Lord's Supper by the 9th century theologian Ratramnus, which convinced Ridley in the, eight, in the 1540s that transubstantiation was not the ancient doctrine of the church. And 
the church became moved towards transubstantiation later, what became an apostate church which moved away from the truth, which was once a church, by the way. It's dangerous to think it was never a church, if you're being honest. It was once a church, but apostatized and officially anathematized the gospel in the Council of Trent in the 16th century. Okay, let's continue. I didn't know that. I thought, wow, well, that's something to consider. Um, and and I, while I won't make a strong statement, I will make a statement about this. It was at that same time that for the first time, someone put a pulpit in the front of the gathering. Um, pay attention to this. This is a common theme of him. He has such a low view of preaching. And this goes back, again, years. It's, it's amazing for a guy who speaks and preaches so much and, and does this so much, he has such a low view of it and always speaks down about it. And it might sound like humility. It's not. We are, anybody who preaches, we are nothing. But we should never diminish preaching, which is what John the Baptist did when he came. He came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. It's dangerous. But he has constantly for years de-emphasized preaching and and also de-emphasize doctrine. Because before that, it was always the body and blood of Christ that was central to their gatherings. For 1,500 years, it was never one guy and his pulpit being the center of the church. It sounds like he's talking about a Roman Catholic church. Um, complete fiction, by the way. Look, what became the Roman Catholic church developed over many centuries what became the papacy as we know it today took many centuries it, it it wasn't until like innocent the third that it really hit the height of its pomp and power before then there was various struggles that took place between leaders national leaders or whatever and and the pope of rome it, it's really Usually, if you do this and you kind of generalize 1,500 years, you can imagine the last 50 years ever, I don't know, if you're trying to generalize since the Second World War, very hard to do, right? Imagine with all the technological changes and all the different movements, and, and we're confused and we don't know where it's going to go next. And yet, we can just kind of go, oh, this is the way it, what, no, no. What, be, what became the Roman Catholic Church took many, many centuries <coughs> of additions, of changes, many things that cannot be at all substantiated or traced back to the scriptures. Now, when I talk about Roman Catholicism, does that mean that I say that there's zero truth in the Roman Catholic Church? That is, it's a straw man. Yeah, they believe in the Trinity. That does not mean it's a false doctrine. 
They may have a few other things that are true, etc. and so on. They believe in one God. They believe that Christ was born of a virgin. You can name things that are true in there. But why is the Church of Rome a synagogue of Satan? Why is it not enough just to say, aha, you see, they agree with the ancient creeds, and, um, well, we need to defend mere Christianity, as C.S. Lewis and now William Lane Craig wants us to do, which would include the Roman Catholic Church, by the way. Um, why can't we just do that? Because the, Ro the Roman Catholic Church no longer has the gospel. It anathematized justification by faith alone, plus many other doctrines which center on the gospel. So what is a church without a gospel, with a false gospel? It can't be a, it can't be a church anymore. It was the body and blood of Christ and even the leaders just saw themselves as partakers. And oh man, we're not worthy, we're not worthy, we're not worthy. I say that because the church is more divided than any time in history. What does this book tell us? And what, just think about it, what divides the church? False doctrine that splits. What creates disunity? when we're not of the same mind. And also, look, yeah, it should break all of our hearts, by the way, disunity in the body. But the things that he's describing, be the Church of Rome and, you know, to another extent, I haven't studied it as much, the Greek Orthodox Church or the Russian Orthodox Church or whatever branch of Orthodoxy it is. I, I've been raised Roman Catholic. I spent a number of years studying Roman Catholicism after I came out of Roman Catholicism. Um... I don't have nearly as much interaction with Greek Orthodoxy or Russian Orthodoxy or any of a lot of those Eastern Christianities. I've done bits of reading on it, but not enough for you to comment on to the same degree that they have that. I know that they have like something like nine sacraments and things like that, but um, this is very much, I mean, I saw, if you look up the hashtag Francis Chan, there's basically polls going up on who's going to convert Francis Chan first. Um, there's, there's no guarantee, of course, that he'll get converted. There's lots of people who have flirted with Rome over the centuries and never converted. There are people who, Roman Catholic apologists, have been left scratching their heads saying, well, why haven't they come to our side? That is obviously one or two things here and there. Francis Chan's also massive. It's amazing because he's a massive schismatic himself. He started his own. It's, you know, what kills me with him is just the, the rampant hypocrisy of him because he talks about, oh, there's so much division in church. And what is he doing about it? He's starting his own strange way of planting churches. You know, if you're really interested in unity within the body, how about, oh, I don't know, maybe bless churches that are already 
there and work within structures. I mean, it seems to me like that he's independent when it comes to church government. If you're really about, oh, you know, there was just one church, as you'll say in a second, well, how can you still be independent and maybe still working these things out, but it's just... Clearly, that he does not want any divisions in his church. And for a thousand years, there was just one church. Did you know that? We're so used to growing up in a time when literally there are over 30,000 Christian denominations. Okay, there's a couple of different uh, problems there. Just one church. Overly simplified. There was, there was some outside. There were groups that... It seems like the old Indians... From, and it looks like they came from northern Italy, broke away from the Diocese of Milan. But I need to do more research in that. The Waldensians were basically the medieval reformed, weren't part of the Church of Rome. There was the, the Donatists, but the Donatists had their own issues as well. Um, don't get into the habit of just thinking just because they were a separatist group, therefore that means they were good and the main line was bad. Don't think like that, because that's that's there might be a case where the mainline church wasn't great, but the, the schism wasn't great either. I agree. We should aim for unity, biblical unity, not compromising in the truth or anything like that. Just go back over what he said there again, just years there was just one church Did you know that we're so used to growing up in a time when literally there are over 30,000 Christian denominations right now oh yeah that was it um 30 um I've talked about this before in the program a couple of years ago National Catholic Register which is a Roman Catholic publication published this article I'm gonna bring it up on the screen here look at that um make this bigger here we go we need this is national catholic register this does not necessarily mean that it, it's true by the way but look we need to stop we need we need to stop saying that there are 33,000 protestant denominations this writer scott eric alt is a freelance writer and author he himself is a catholic okay um he talks about how where the number comes from. So much of so much of Francis Chan's stuff, it sounds like it's just coming straight from a Roman Catholic apologist. That's what it sounds like to me. Um he says the source, according to this writer for the, the National Catholic Catholic Register, because it's an absurd number, thirty-three thousand. Protestant denominations. I mean, I, I think any sensible person should know that that is absolutely, absolute nonsense. But where where does the number come from? It doesn't just come out of thin air. It apparently comes from the two-volume World Christian Encyclopedia. Um, and the number is basically, there's over 33,000 distinct denominations. Now, what are these um, 
what is world Christianity? 22,000 denominations make up of independents. Protestants, 9,000. That's 27% of the whole. And then there's other groups as well. Even Catholics make up, according to this, 242 denominations. And Anglicans, even fewer. Um, and then... <laughs> it's just... And then in this article, you can just look this up on ncregister.com. Um, you can see it there at the top of the screen. ncregister.com forward slash blog forward slash Scott. Yeah, anyway, just Google. We need to stop saying that there are 33,000 Protestant denominations. It's pretty easy to find. Within that number, let's just see now, the, the number for 9,000 denominate or protestants i'm sure you see the problem is how many of these protestants are in any way if you look at the breakdown there's nothing i of that 9000 number you'd wonder about the breakdown of it i Somebody would have to do the research on that. So, look, the the, the long and short of it, the the thirty the thirty plus thousand, and over the years, inflation seems to have kicked in, and the number got inflated. I think years ago it was like something in the twenty thousand range. It's an absurd number. I'll be honest. To my ears, even nine thousand sounds like a lot, but um. That's according to Encyclopedia, and how they would define Protestants would be very interesting. He says in this article, however strong the temptation, some might be to characterize anything not Catholic or Orthodox as Protestant, you can't do that. And here's a Catholic acknowledging that this is what's happening, because they will categorize anything that is not Catholic or Orthodox or Protestant when they do these, these so-called numbers. And what is Francis Chan doing? Just repeating it. But for the first thousand years, it was just one. What was interesting is communion was at the center of the room every time they gathered. And it wasn't a pulpit where a guy preached after studying in his office by himself for 20 hours. See, right now we've got God. You see, there's there's almost like a pietistic element to it, a, a very anti-intellectualism, a very a downplaying of the role of the teaching ministry and the preaching of the Word of God. What did Jesus come to do? To preach. What did John the Baptist come to do? To preach. The apostles, mainly, to preach. What, was, what did Timothy do? What was Timothy told to do? Preach the word in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke with all long suffering doctrine. But apparently it's it's not as important as um what Rome says about the mass. The blasphemous, idolatrous mass. And look, if you want more details on that, years ago, and our brother who's now with the Lord, Richard Bennett. 
I did a program with him. I think it was back in 2015 and uh, December 25th, 2015, I think was when the program, if I'm not mistaken, the program was just called The Blasphemous Roman Catholic Mass. If you're just wondering what exactly is the problem with that, I would recommend that you go back to that program. Uh, you can look that up on MiguelRadio.com. You can also find it on YouTube somewhere, I'm sure. Sorry, this is not clicking. Like me, that go in a room, study, you know, that, that's what I was doing for years. Meanwhile, other guys went in their rooms and studied, and then we started all giving different messages, so many contradicting each other, and pretty soon it's like, well, I follow Piper, I follow Chan, I follow, you know, it's just like everyone's following different guys. I just don't know why he stays talking then, if, if, if this is the case. Um... He seems to have, again, a guy who has such a low view preaching certainly does a lot of it. I'm just saying I, I believe there was something about taking communion out of the center of the church and replace it with a gifted speaker. Not that that gifted speaker is not a part of the body of Christ and a gift to the body of Christ but the body itself needs to be back in the center of the church. You guys, I've been dreaming about this. I've been praying about this. Going, man, I would love it if one day in our country here in the U.S., people understood the body of Christ, that they were just a part of it, and they got excited to gather and partake of the body and blood of Christ. And they celebrated together, and that's why we gathered. Okay, so I was going to play some other clips, but I think that's really enough from the point of view of, of that. We are, how long we're into the program? We're 50 minutes into the program, so for the last couple of minutes, I'm just going to be dealing with any questions that may come up. And um, if there's none, I'll, I might just finish a slightly bit early tonight. Um, I'll just go through some of the questions that might come up. Um, greetings, Benjamin. Yeah, uh, yeah, I'm I'm more than happy to. Is it a program on Presbyterianism? I'd be happy to do that. Uh, some stage in the future, <laughs> possibly in the summer, but we'll see. We'll see how things work out. Um, so. Somebody says here, but the Lord through Paul goes on to say, do not be unified with false prophets. Yeah, completely agree. Do, look, what we should seek is unity. And we see from Psalm 133 that the Lord loves unity among brothers. And not a false unity it has to be in the truth. We should seek that as much as possible. But however, what fellowship has life? With darkness. There's no fellowship with a false church, with a, with a harlot, which is what the Roman Catholic Church has become. And any kind of spiritual relationship with the Roman Catholic Church is sinful and wrong and needs to be repented of. Now, does, this does not mean don't show love towards your Roman Catholic neighbors. This does not mean don't witness them. Do witness them. They need the gospel. They need the gospel. 
I know people sometimes have these arguments. Well, is it possible that somebody might be in the Roman Catholic Church and might be saved? Yeah, is it possible? It, I guess it's possible. But you should exhort them to leave. You see idolatry everywhere. I think it's a it's irrelevant. Now, ask another question: Is does someone who is in the Roman Catholic Church have a credible profession of faith? No, they're part of a false church. See, they're two different questions. Okay, you know somebody might have been Richard Bennett got saved and preached as a Roman Catholic preached priest preach as a Roman Catholic priest until eventually he got removed. But that's the thing. If you're preaching the true gospel, you won't be too welcome, especially as a priest or anything like that. Like that. But you might stay in there for a, 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 an amount of time trying to witness to people. I'm not saying that you should. You need to come out. But the Lord can use that as you discover things, as you study through the scriptures. Look, I went, I got saved and the following Sunday after, I went to Roman Catholic Mass. I had no idea. Sometimes it takes people time, but the Spirit of God will lead them in the truth. They'll grow in holiness, they'll produce fruit, and they'll turn more and more in, in hatred of idolatry and things like that. But how long is that? How long is a piece of string? But we should, at the same time, while being gracious towards people and loving towards people, we should still have the attitude of no peace with Rome, no peace with the devil. Um, let's see if there's any other questions or anything else that somebody asked here, isn't he from neo-Calvinism? I think you're talking about new Calvinism. Um, Neo-Calvinism tends to be more the Dutch reformed guys from the late 19th century, but sometimes people say neo-Calvinism when it comes to, was it like John Piper, uh, Timothy Keller. I've, I haven't studied a whole ton of Timothy Keller, but he says things that are profoundly not Calvinistic in any way, shape or form. If by neo-Calvinism you mean not Calvinism, okay. Um, stick neo in front of something and often is, it's new something and you, it sounds like something's been redefined there somewhere. Uh, there's um, Mark Driscoll was part of that whole new Calvinism movement. It, it's highly Arminian. You know, they may kind of go, uh-huh, 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 to the tulip, but it doesn't go much further than that. That's 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 why there's a massive danger if your Calvinism is only in your head and it doesn't affect how you live your life. I'll give you one example. If you believe in the sovereignty of God, you want to glorify God in all, all things. All things for the glory of God. Um, Joel Beakey wrote a really good book on that. I can't remember the name of it. I think, to God's glory. Um, type in... If you want to get this book, I think it's like an introduction to Calvinism. And it's a it's a very good book because the problem is what's happened to Calvinism, especially over the last... And it's been encouraging 
But a lot of the stuff online, it's it's all about, it's very much of the head. Very little of the heart. And how reformed doctrine should humble you, changing your heart to love God. Not just to love, hey, look at my systematic theology. Look at my great t-shirt. I'm so reformed. I'm sorry, but you know what I mean? You haven't really got... You know, when you can look through the doctrine of election and there's tears in your eyes and you say, why? I am so unworthy that it, it strips away your pride. If it fills you full of pride, that is not Reformed theology. Okay, um, so look, a lot of this stuff, and look, what's happened to a lot of new Calvinism stuff? John Piper's gone off in the weird direction he's gone off, and when it comes to final salvation, dealt with that in another program. Um, Mark Driscoll has gone off in disgrace and had weird visions. Um, Timothy Keller goes on to confuse everybody on Twitter every five seconds and doesn't understand why, but of course it's not his fault. And um, who's the other person? It doesn't last. If you really want to know what what Calvinism is, what actual reform, the read the Westminster Confession of Faith, or read the Belgic Confession, or one of the the, catech the Heidelberg Catechism, or or the Shorter Catechism. You know, what's the first question of the Shorter Catechism of the Westminster Confession? Or the Westminster Shorter Catechism, what is man's chief end? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's what it is. If you just learn it, you read a systematic theology and you get a big buzz about filling your head full of stuff, but it doesn't impact how you live. That That's... That, that's just going to condemn you. The Puritans were all about head, heart, and hands. If you know, the more truth you know, the more is, if you've done nothing with the previous truth you've been given, and I don't mean that you have to like do something wacky. Are you growing in holiness? If you're a father, are you a, a more godly father? from what you have learned from the scripture. If you're a mother, same thing. If you're a child of 15, are you submitting more and more to your parents? Are you better in your school? That's what I'm talking about. People think, we you know, when you have, you have to do some grand gesture and become the center of attention. No. Often the godliest people are in the background and nobody really pays attention to them. But the Lord knows exactly what is going on with them. Anyway, sorry. Let's get back on to um, finish off some of the questions. Um, somebody's asking about Kanye West. <laughs> I was going to do a program on Kanye West. Just didn't have time. And I have no idea. He's let's just give the benefit of the doubt. Just, just say he is saved. Hope for the best. He has no business going around anywhere. Let's just treat him just like... In, I'm talking about Kanye West now. Somebody's asked in the chat room. Let's just treat Kanye West just like any other babe in Christ. He needs to join a church. 
he needs to not be the center of attention. Seriously, for his own good. I'm not saying he can't put out music or whatever. That's not what I'm saying. But but the churches making him the big thing, the big draw, that is detrimental for him. And look, babes in Christ make messes. And some people can be Christian for a very long time and should never be in leadership. They don't have, they're not mature enough. Leadership is not for the popular. Eldership, or especially in a ministry, it should be somebody called of by God. God wants you there. Um, I, I would urge kind of, I wouldn't get, if Kanye West is truly a believer in Jesus Christ, he's a babe in Christ, I know my first two years, I and I, and I completely admit, I started doing Megiddo films and Megiddo radio way too early. I should have waited until I was, you know, people might say, oh, I'd like to do a podcast too. Wait until you're saved at least a couple of years. I'm not saying you have to be in Christian ministry, you know, in a pastor to do it or anything like that. I don't believe that. But don't wait for a couple of years. And at least wait until you're at least saved five years. Now, that does not even mean that you're mature enough to do that. But I was definitely too young when I started. Look, but I kept going and here I am. I made my mistakes and here we are. Um, you're not helping. If somebody is famous and gets saved, it's not doing them any favors, putting them front and center. It's really not. What they got to learn is to be more and more like Christ, not for everybody else to be. Can they live without being the center of attention? And there's a sense in which I feel bad for him. Because you wonder, will people leave him alone? But you'd wonder if he's insisting upon it. But I digress. So that's about um, Kanye West. And, um, and I also worry about Christians who are placing all their hope in him as if he's going to bring in some massive revival in interest in whatever. No, great. If he points towards Christ in his interviews, praise the Lord, brilliant. And if somebody actually gets saved through that, wonderful. But what are babe in Christ? Do you kind of go, oh, this person say, and make it sound like they're going to make all the difference. God is going to be the one who makes the difference. I wish people would, pro if you took all that time, I see people putting up things with Kanye West and their Facebook and all this kind of stuff. Take all of that time you're, 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 I'm sorry, wasting on that and pray for your minister. Okay? <laughs> Just pray for your minister. He may, he's not nearly as popular. But he knows the scriptures far more than Kanye West does. I, there's a good chance that that is the case. Christians need to get away from celebrity culture and worship and everything else like that. That, mm, No. It's, do you know what, right? When God uses someone to change a church, it's often a nobody. Who is John Knox in the Scottish Reformation? He was, he was catechizing children at home up until, I think he was in his 30s. If you look at the men that God has used in the church, they've often had quote-unquote, 
boring lives. And But the Lord uses that. I, I wouldn't even say boring, but you know what I mean? Stuff that might excite the world. And that time is used for preparation for the time when the Lord would use them and all this kind of stuff. The Lord knows the right time. The Lord knows the right time. Anyway, I talk about this all night. Anyway, so... Um, Yeah, people are talking about the NAR. I'm not going to talk too much about the NAR tonight because um, it's possible, I guess, for a... Yeah, the NAR is another issue. And unfortunately, for those of you not aware, the NAR, someone's brought up in the chat about the new apostolic reformation. <laughs> that always makes me chuckle. <coughs> When I think of John MacArthur's definition of new apostolic reformation, it's not new, it's not apostolic, and it's not a reformation, but it, it, it's it's the next wave of the charismatic movement, and there's going to be probably another one in five to ten years. The problem is, right, once you've discredited the new apostolic reformation, before that it was the third wave in the 90s, and, uh, you know, the every 10 to 20 years is a new thing. You know, and you can discredit it, and you know what's going to happen? Something else will happen. What we need is a positive return to the Word of God, and a positive love for the Word of God, and our churches, however orthodox, however much we might know about the anywhere and not like it, we lack that. We need positive truth, and we need positive truth to be focused on. Um, I'm not saying ignore the NAR or anything like that, but our main focus should be on positive truth, loving the Word of God, being satisfied in Christ, so that this experientialism and this lust and thirst for more beyond the Word of God is um, evaporates. You'll always get elements of it. They even have bits of it during the Reformation as well. Anyway, so I think that's it. Um, Anybody got any suggestions for programs can email me at mcgillfilms at gmail.com. Um, if you are a Roman Catholic listening to this, I just pray that, you, not even just necessarily comparing Protestant with Roman Catholicism, do you know the Lord? Are you trusting in your works? Are you trusting Christ alone? Have you repented of your sins, forsaken them, turning from them? I pray that by God's grace that you may know him and trust him. It's been Paul Flynn. May God bless you all.